Now that voting is underway, you might think confusion about the new rules would be cleared up. Well, you'd be very wrong. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com, all hopped up on allergy meds today. So, Jeremy, guess what? People, if they want to hold me accountable for anything I say during the show, good luck. Yeah. Jeremy Wallace is at the Houston Chronicle and HoustonChronicle.com. How are you? Uh, doing all right. It's like we're, we're so close to election day. We're, what, we're, when people are hearing this, we're talking 10 days of voting mm-hmm. left in, in, until the primary. Right. And so given that, I thought it would be helpful as a public service because, you know, people listen to this show in all sorts of different ways and in different places. People like to, over the weekend, uh, listen to the show as they head out to early vote, which they may do on Saturday. Um, You know, you have people who like to work out to the show. There are people who might be in a kayak in Austin, people uh, jogging in Dallas, people definitely in their car in Houston. That's just my guess. Um, uh, I think as a public service, we should talk about the rules around voting, right? Because first of all, there's this whole mess with mail-in ballots. And as we talk to folks today, as we record the show on Friday afternoon, an important deadline has now arrived. Who is, uh, who is this trying to get our attention? Hello, fellow Texans. I'm Texas Secretary of State John Scott with an important message about the upcoming elections. Two days ago, Jeremy, John Scott, the Secretary of State, who, by the way, was one of the original attorneys to try to overturn the election in favor of President Trump. And some folks said that that's why Governor Abbott chose him. Do you, um, before Abbott, remember the Secretary of State ever being so highly controversial in Texas? I had asked this question uh, on social media a couple of weeks ago, and somebody, you know, a few people weighed in and said, well, yeah, there's been controversies with the Secretary of State. And they started to talk about, you know, little things that had happened. I worded it that way for a reason. Highly controversial. Yeah. This guy, this guy helped. He was there working on one of the cases to try to help Trump overturn the election, which, of course, probably means, and not just probably, pretty much guaranteed that his nomination would not survive a Texas Senate process because it takes two thirds of senators to confirm the Secretary of State or these other appointees by the governor. This is a highly partisan pick. So John Scott put out this video two days before today's deadline to explain the rules around uh, mail-in ballots and mail-in ballot applications. You know, you have to ask for one, right? Because this was a big point of contention. Remember, during the 2020 election, what was it? Uh, uh, Chris Hollins, who was the, at, at the time, the county clerk in Harris County, had sent out those ballot applications just to every eligible voter in Harris County. Right. And so Republicans said we can't have that. A lot of the things and you talked about this a lot, Jeremy, in uh, here on the show and in your coverage, a lot of what was done in the big elections bill, which had several numbers last year, because we had, as you remember, several legislative sessions, it ended up being Senate Bill one. A lot of what's in there was a reaction, a response to things that were done in Harris County, including that move by Hollins and also the 24 hour voting the drive-through voting and all of that, right? And so what are some of the differences now when it comes to mail-in ballots? There are some requirements that, uh, you know, have to do with uh, personal identifying information on those ballots and things like that. Yeah, and and Senator uh, Brandon Creighton had that piece originally that got worked into the bill about making sure people had to put a social security number or a driver's license on the application to even get uh, your, your absentee ballot, and then you have to put it on again. You know, when you get your absentee ballot, you got to fill that mm-hmm. stuff out now. So just a lot more rules around the absentee balloting, you know, process, who can handle it, who can help you out with it. It's like all of it has like been changed and, you know, it's, it's a lot to kind of work. Remember, it was a huge bill. But giant bill. And so, you know, there are some, as we've pointed out here, there are some things in there that even Democrats might like, like the fact that you can now register or you can update your registration if you move from one county to another, things like that. I know that um, some Democratic political professionals were happy about that. I think on balance, Democrats would say it was unnecessary and parts of it are, uh, as they would say, are, are voter suppression straight up, uh, you know, including some of these things that surround what poll watchers can do and stuff like that. Now, the Texas Tribune had a pretty good story about Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick 
and how his campaign, at least the way they wrote the story, that he had messed up and sent vote-by-mail applications to some of his supporters, to Republican voters, and encouraged them to send their mail ballot applications to the Secretary of State's office, which is not what's supposed to happen under Texas law. Those are supposed to go to the local elections office in the county where you live. Um, Patrick was on the Mark Davis show in Dallas, and he told my friend Mark that it wasn't a mistake. He said he was trying to give um, GOP voters some sort of a comfort level about whether their mail ballot applications would be processed uh, in a timely manner. It's not a whoops. You can do it to either. And uh, I wanted to be sure that all the mail-in ballots were um, uh, counted properly and registered properly and timely. Uh, so by getting them to the Secretary of State, we have a record. They immediately send them out to the counties, so we have a record. Uh, and this came about in part uh, because I discovered last fall that some people who had registered to vote uh, uh, properly on time, the registration just sat in a stack um, in, the, um, uh, in the electioneer's office in Harris County, and uh, the people weren't, weren't going to be allowed to vote because they hadn't gotten to them. And, uh, and one of those people, Mark, was me. Uh, I, sent in, I sent in mine and my wife sent tires in the same day. Uh, she got her, she got her uh, uh, register, registration on time. I didn't get mine when we looked into it. They said, oh, we just, we just had it on a stack. We hadn't gotten to it yet. So by sending them to the Secretary of State, we now have an official record of when they went in. They send them to the uh, local offices, and we will be sure uh, if for some reason they're not counted that we know where it happened, that they were just put on a stack and they didn't get their form mailed back. Well, things about this. One, if it went to the Secretary of State's office first, let's say you filled out your mail ballot application, it went to the Secretary of State's office in Austin, and then it had to go to the local county, then it would go back to the Secretary of State's office, right? So there's no question that it would take longer to do it this way. And then I had this, uh, this question. Is Patrick right that you can send it to either place? Well, remember, I told you that John Scott, the Secretary of State, put out that video just two days before we're recording today on this deadline for having those uh, mail ballot applications get to your county uh, elections office. And in that video, Secretary of State Scott said that actually, no, it needs to go to the county where you live. In order to vote by mail, you must make sure your application for a ballot by mail is received by Friday, February 18th, at your county early voting clerk's office. Huh. So it needs to be, if you're in Harris County, it needs to go to the Harris County's clerk's yep. office, right? If you are in Travis County, same thing, the clerk's office there. You can replicate that across every county clerk's office <laughs> across the entire state of Texas. Now, in May of 2020, Patrick, who's now doing this uh, mail-in ballot application program, which you know he and other Republicans have used with a lot of success in Texas and other places, but back during the election year, he said that mail ballots are nothing but a scam that Democrats are using to steal votes. There is no reason, capital N, capital O, no reason that anyone under 65 should be able to say, I'm afraid to go vote. Have they been to a grocery store? Have they been to Walmart? Have they been to Lowe's? Have they been to Home Depot? Have they been anywhere? Have they been afraid to go out of their house? Yeah. No, this is a scam by the Democrats to steal the election. And Ed, let me ask you this. Have you ever gotten anyone's mail by mistake? Has anyone stolen mail out of your mailbox, a package off your front step? Uh, we know that during a, a, a voting cycle that people move, some people die. Sure. We're gonna have millions of ballots that across this country go out to people who no longer live there or who have died, and it opens up the door yeah. for fraudulent voting, one at a time or many at a time. There are always questions uh, during elections about how to keep the vote secure, but also balance that against allowing people to exercise their right to vote. And what was the tagline that Republicans all last year in the legislature used, Jeremy, as they talked about the election reform. They said it would be easy to vote and hard to cheat. It seems like it's getting harder to vote based on some of these changes that have been made. And as you have pointed out, there were some Republicans in the legislative process who tried to warn them about that. Yeah, exactly. Of, of all the people who vote early and vote absentee particularly, 
it's really a large Republican you know, part of the electorate. Uh, right. you know, Lyle Larson, the uh, uh, state sen- or the state representative from San Antonio, uh, he had warned about this over and over again. And like, I found one of his tweets from it where he like ran down all the data that shows that sixty four percent of Texas Republicans cast their ballots early. You know, not all absentee ballots, but like that's a large portion of that. Like I think he said, like of the voters over fifty-five Republicans, ninety-one percent voted earlier by mail. And so when they're targeting early voting and absentee voting, is like he asked the question I think a lot of us were asking at the time, which is, are we trying to make it harder for Republicans to vote? Right. And that's what you're kind of getting. It's like and you saw it even in that in that Scott video where he ends up explaining to people when you're filling out your your information now have to put the driver's license on there. You might want to also put on the social security number. It's not required to have both, but you might want to do it because there might be a snafu where we knock you out because it we don't have the original one, whatever one you put on there on record. It's very confusing. And you're doing this to people over 65 who are predominantly Republican voting by mail. It's like you've just put so much added risk of having absentee ballots thrown out from the very people that I would think Dan Patrick wants a lot of going out to vote. Yeah, let me bring it full circle for you. So you remember that in 2020, there were some Republican voters who said they were very skeptical of mail-in ballots, and it was driven by what President Trump at the time was saying, which is basically what Patrick was just saying there. They're all following Trump on this stuff. Trump had said this is where all of the fraud happens. It's in the mail balloting that you have all this fraud. Now, while he was saying that, Trump was voting by mail from his home in Florida. That's one thing you should know. Another thing you should know is that the Republican Party of Texas was sending people vote-by-mail applications with President Trump's face on the front of the envelope. And on the front of the envelope, it said, President Trump wants you to fill out this form. And when you opened it up, it was a request form for a mail ballot, that this is for the folks who are over 65. And if you look at the attitudes of Republican voters in places like Pennsylvania, which was key in President Biden's win— a third, a full third of Republican voters there said that they would not trust the results from mail ballots, so much so that many of them said they would not vote by mail and they would not vote at all if voting by mail was the only way that they could vote. So you have Secretary Scott, our sec- this is where it's full circle, our, our Secretary of State was one of the attorneys trying to overturn that election result in Pennsylvania Jeremy, where it was so confusing even for Republican voters that it may, based on what I just laid out, I don't think it's a stretch to say at all, that President Trump may have actually suppressed his own voters. Well, well, especially you know, in Florida, where he was voting by mail, Republicans have been super aggressive in pushing their voters to vote by mail. And so to mm-hmm. add that level of doubt to those voters, it's like, it, again, it doesn't make any sense when, like, we've lo- known for years that, like, Republican voters choose the absentee, and the early voting was won typically by the Democrats in a lot of states. And so, like, this, all of this doesn't really make much sense, you know, if you're a Republican. Why do you want to make it harder for your people? You know, go after the restrictions on early voting. That's what Florida Republicans were doing. They were trying to make it harder for people to vote early because they saw more Democrats were using that. But here, like, Republicans have decided, you know what, we're going to make it harder harder for our voters to get their ballots in and we don't know why we're doing it and i think it's because of trump right is that's it, the only well, it has answer. to be it it has to be and on so many of these different issues it's because trump said a certain thing yes. about whatever the issue is and they the republicans feel they just have to follow right along with that it's why it's the same reason that republicans are are you know uh coveting the endorsement of trump because you know they believe that the the easy way to be reelected in a Republican primary in this state and elsewhere is to have the support of the former president and the support of those who love him. Yeah, and look what they're setting up. You you can see where this is going, right? All of this is about Harris County typically to me it's like you know grant i write for the houston chronicle but you see that like a lot of these you know concerns they had were about harris county and why is that because harris county has flung so much in the democratic hands at this point it's now threatening statewide elected officials if if dan patrick were to lose his reelection, you know in the general election or governor abbott would go down to beto o'rourke you know they would be looking at harris county saying 
dead people were voting there. You know, it's like, you know, it, it, this is, you know, Harris County's the problem. This is why, you know, it feels like they're setting up, you know, the storyline, you know, when we get into the general election. If it does go the wrong way, they're go- they're, that's all we're going to hear about. It's going to be a stone election in Harris County, you know, and they've already kind of laid all the groundwork for that to kind of be in people's head on top of what we already heard from Trump. You know, it, it's just it's going to be perfectly lined up. Right. And uh, again, following what Trump had said, remember in Texas, he said that he would have won by more than six points if there hadn't been so much cheating going on yep. in this state, which is why he has demanded um, a full forensic audit of the election uh, in Texas, which again, he won. Um, but uh, but yeah, this this is far from over. I mean, the, and, and, oh, and, the, and not the to, claims will be... Mm-hmm. And not to you know, hammer home, but I guess where the, those audits are aimed at, right? Harris County. <laughs> Harris County is well, being audited for its election, you know, handling, you know, and every right. rule we just passed in the legislature is aimed at Harris County. And yeah, and, and who is Dan Patrick always fighting with? The Harris County judge, right? And it's like, this is getting yes. becoming pretty much thematic at this point. I had a request from some listeners after our last show to have us weigh in on something that was said uh, by uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York. She was in San Antonio, I guess this is almost two, this is last week, almost two weeks ago. She was talking about, and you reported on this early on, Jeremy, about her early life in organizing in politics, and a lot of it started here. Right started started right here, in the great state, and I'll let you hear some of what she said at the event. There was a little background noise, but you can still hear what she's saying. I'm just letting you know that you got to listen a little closer here to this to hear what AOC is saying about her time in Texas. My organizing life started right here in the state of Texas. I was a teenager uh, when I was kind of. Um, when I was reached out to by a community organization out here based in Texas. So there she is in San Antonio, and she was stumping for a couple of uh, candidates uh, for Congress, Greg Kassar from uh, Austin and Jessica Cisneros from uh, South Texas. And she talked about traveling all over the state trying to organize Democrats. I spent a lot of time here in Texas. I spent a lot of time organizing here in San Antonio and in Austin. I took eight-hour drives from here down to Eagle Pass. I spent time in Laredo. I spent time in Houston and in Dallas, all over this state. A lot of people don't know that. And in those years doing that work, the absolute indelible impression that was left on me is that this state is going to change the country. She said that it is inevitable that Texas will turn blue. And this is why I got the questions from listeners. They said, is that true? It's inevitable that it's going to turn blue. Well, there's a lot to say about it, Jeremy, but you had reported uh, the fact that she was, um, you know, basically cutting her teeth years ago in politics in South Texas, right? Yeah, exactly. And what she was referencing there was the National Hispanic Institute, uh, which is a group just outside of San Marcos uh, that is like a, a, a program for, for young Hispanic uh, students to kind of learn to be leaders in their communities, you know, and things like that. And so it's not just her, you know, among the people who were in that program included Lena Hidalgo. Uh, so you can see <laughs> there's a, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, well-known politicians this day and age that are coming through that program. But so she came through there she like she, she mentioned in there she was doing a lot of groundwork you know particularly in south texas uh going to communities and talking to other students and uh younger people you know in the region so it's like she definitely has like you know roots in this area now at least enough to be able to kind of you know claim a little bit of a home town feeling at times sure. we've heard it before from her she's done things with julian castro and mm-hmm. repeatedly has brought this up well and i think um on this question of the state inevitably turning blue, you know that I've been frustrated with national publications that are only able to write about Texas politics that way. That, that that's always the question, right? It, will Texas turn blue? Is this the cycle where it finally turns blue? Um, you know, if it turns blue, we'll be here to cover it in real time. And you know that I love covering competitive elections. So 
I would be excited to see it, you know, to see a real robust exchange of ideas between Republicans and Democrats and have November really matter. The closest we've been to that for this generation is in 2018 when Beto O'Rourke came just so close, right, uh, to beating Ted Cruz. But as I have said before, I'll say it again, for a lot of young Democrats in this state, for all the young Democrats in this state, it, their their only frame of reference for a winning campaign statewide is one that they still lost to yeah. one of the most hated senators in Washington, <laughs> right? So it's uh, it's rough sledding. It's a rough uh, road to hoe, tough road to hoe, as they say on the farm. Um, so So let me say this. I think that people have it in their head that because Texas was a democratic state, a one-party state for a hundred years, yeah. right? With the Democrats in charge, conservative Democrats for the most part, but there were more progressive Democrats and there were more conservative Democrats. There were always more conservative Democrats uh, than there were liberal ones. Um, but it's a pretty new thing in the, you know, in the grand scheme of in, in history that Texas is a Republican state. We're only 20 years, or think about it, we're only 20 years removed from the la from the election where Republicans finally won the majority in the Texas House of Representatives in 2002. So they had their first real shot at a majority and, and redrawing lines and mid-decade redistricting and all of that in 2003 at the behest of the former majority leader in Washington, Tom DeLay from Sugarland. Um, but I think people have it in their head that it kind of just happened organically on its own, that it was, you know, a democratic state. And because there are so many conservative people here and Republicans are more conservative than Democrats, you know, nationally, that people just sort of naturally you know, just sort of gravitated to Republicans. But there was some of that, Jeremy, but it was actually investment by Republicans and a lot of hard work done by Republicans in this state to connect dots for people. So let me, let me tell you what I mean. So like in places like San Antonio, Houston, Dallas-Fort Worth, East Texas, West Texas, all places that used to overwhelmingly elect Democrats, right? There was, at one point, I think there were only four, three or four Republican members of the Texas House. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone else was a Democrat. And what Republicans set out to do, one of my mentors in politics was a guy named Royal Messe who passed away a few years ago. And um, he was the political director for the RPT, the Republican Party of Texas, back in the late 80s, early 90s. And he, working alongside guys like Karl Rove and all those folks, wanted to make the case to all these conservative Democrats all over the place that the National Party, the Democrats, are no longer representative of your values, right? And they, and they took uh, a whole host of things. Uh, they particularly talked about um, abortion and the idea that a lot of these folks would rather see more abortion restrictions while the National Democratic Party was more pro-choice, right? Um, and on a whole host of issues, whether it was, you know, the economic uh, philosophies espoused by people like Ronald Reagan, et cetera, that for all these people who had been traditionally voting for Democrats, that Republicans actually had a platform that reflected the values of these people. But the voters didn't just figure that out on their own. Republicans had to go do that. And so at that time, uh, Royal, who I mentioned, Royal Messe, he came up with something called Orvis. It was optimal Republican voting strength. And this was far, was way back before any of us had ever heard of um, you know, micro-targeting and all of that. But by the numbers, the guy was a real genius, by the numbers, he could figure out which Texas House districts and congressional districts it would make the most sense to spend money in to convince the people who were there that they should be voting for Republicans instead of Democrats. And so they were very successful with that. Governor uh, Richards, back you know after she was no longer in office, Ann Richards, she also said that Democrats helped the Republicans with some of that, right? Because in, within the Democratic Party, they set out, she was one of the liberal members, she set out to drive all those conservatives out of the Democratic Party. They had their own party purity at that time, right? And she said, you know, unfortunately for her own party, she and others were very successful. That, that was her joke about it, uh, that basically she and uh, others who were engaged in that kind of uh, party purity test and activism uh, were in some ways enabling the election of people like Rick Perry, George W. Bush, and others who were statewide Republican officials after the Democrats fell from power in this state. Uh, and so I look around the state now, and I think there are some parallels. There are some reasons 
that the kind of activism that AOC is involved in could be effective with some people. Now, I don't know that uh, there's this sleeping giant of you know so many Democrats who are to the far left, like AOC is, but I do think there are a lot of people in this state who are probably ripe for picking off by Democrats on certain issues, and they've had some success with that. For example, I think there are a lot of women who have maybe traditionally voted for Republicans in this state, particularly suburban women. And we've talked about this a lot. Suburban women who, and you can see it in some of the polling, you see it in some of the election results, do not agree with the Republican leadership about how far they have gone on abortion restrictions. That's one big issue. Another issue that I hear, and this is, this is anecdotal, I'm sure there's some polling to back it up, on guns. Soccer moms, you know, don't agree in large part that people should be able to walk around with a handgun with no permit, right? And so, and so you have the legislature lurching to the right at a time when Democrats perhaps have a chance to pick off some of these folks and say, look, the Republicans don't represent your values anymore on a whole host of things. And I hear people say this, Jeremy, and I want to hear your thoughts on all of, the, on all of my, my, my allergy uh, medicated inspired uh, rambling. But I hear people say, look, if you took the social issues out of the, all this stuff, if you took out the LGBT stuff, the abortion stuff, and some of the other things that get people really animated, if you, if you took those things out and you talked only about things like Medicaid expansion and some of these uh, bread and butter issues that there are a lot of people who otherwise might vote for Republicans could vote for Democrats. But to me, that's like saying we could make a pizza with no crust and it would still be a good pizza. In other words, you can't do that. You, you can't say that in an election, you can just eliminate the issues that people actually do care about. Out, right? So on those social issues, the Republicans have still been able in this state to animate their base in a way that uh, has put them over the top in some of these elections. But we saw in 2018 where Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, for example, who we were talking about earlier, he was really talking about some of the bread and butter issues like giving teachers pay raises and things like that. So we, at this point, shouldn't say that the state uh, isn't going to be competitive this year for Democrats. I don't know that. I don't know that it's going to be a super competitive year either, um, because look, it's a, it's a tough environment for Democrats this year with a democratic president in the white house. Historically, it's always the opposition party that does better at just about every level, but on issues like constitutional carry that I mentioned on the abortion issue, on the electricity grid, which I didn't mention yet, which of course you pointed out, the recent weather, I think, did the Democrats some favors, right? Of getting people just sort of triggered and remembering, you know, just how bad it was. They have sort of PTSD from the big freeze last year. There are some things that Democrats can make a case on to make it competitive. But I would just stress, this stuff doesn't happen on its own. People don't just decide that they're going to vote for the other party out of nowhere. The party has to, the party that's, uh, you know, trying to win over these folks, they've got to connect these dots. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm, it's hard, like the whole discussion, like I, I, it's, I've been asked this like over and over again, you know, is Texas going to turn, you know, blue or it's, it's like, and, and I never really fully answered the question, I guess. Uh, but the thing is like, look, and everybody who's listened to this podcast has heard this way too much from me probably, but I'm going to keep pounding it. We are a, a red state you know, with a blue spine going through us, you know, the, for the urban cores, you know, along the I-34 core, I-35 corridor and, you know, what you see in Houston, the, the blue has gotten so deep in those areas it is now mm -hmm. throwing off the balance in which Republicans were able to rely upon in the rural communities to kind of put them over at the top. And like you were talking about, it's like for Democrats, like I was around in the 80s and 90s, you know, when Democrats yeah. were starting to lose their hold on it, a lot of it had to do with the shift in the way the two parties focused on agriculture. You know, a lot of those mm -hmm. rural communities were Democratic for very long, even after Reagan, they were still Democratic for a reason. It's because in the agricultural world, the Democrats were better to the farmers for so long. And but the Republicans yeah. started changing their tune on it and it really kind of shifted things. But it speaks to like, you know, like you were talking about with the bread and butter issues, like when one party can see the other's gone too far off on the social direction and can take advantage of the, the middle of the road politics, when it turns into you're know, talking about schools, talking about roads, talking about taxes, when you get into that and you can start kind of hitting people 
in the right spot, that's when Williamson County and Hayes County flip Democratic or Republican. That's when Fort Bend County flips over. You know, when, when you start kind of cutting through and it's not just about, you know, the social politics, but then it becomes like, okay, every day I drive to work, the traffic sucks, my school I'm concerned about, and my taxes are outrageous. You address those three things. That's when you start getting that mushy, middle, independent kind of person uh, swinging one way or the other. Because the, the two sides are where they are. It's like the yeah. Republicans and Democrats aren't swinging over too much. It's those people in the suburban areas who don't quite know if they're Republican or Democrat all the time. But if you start talking about their kid's school or talk about the roads or talking about their taxes, that's going to yeah. move people. And that's where you see, like, as you listen to Beto O'Rourke, Look at what he's trying to do. I'm not saying he's successful at this yet, but the fact that he's focusing on the grid, on Medicaid, on uh, uh, medical marijuana or marijuana usage. And it's like those are issues that you can see he's trying to find some way into people's thought process that's just beyond, you know, going to get the pro-choice voters out uh, and that kind of whole world. And I also think that the candidates themselves matter. So you bring yes. up Beto O'Rourke, um, and it's been pointed out to me over and over again that he's the kind of candidate. And look, I'm not, I, again, I'm not even willing to say yet that this is going to be a competitive year for Democrats in Texas. I don't know that. We, let's get through the primary. We'll figure that out. Um, but I do think that it's worth noting, and you know, some of my mentors in politics have pointed this out over and over. It was the candidates who had the energy to be everywhere, who toppled incumbents, including George W. Bush, who beat Governor Richards. Bush was everywhere. Yep. One of my, someone I used to work with covered that race, was embedded with Bush and said, you know, she wasn't anywhere and he was just everywhere. And, you know, you, that, you go back to the 90s for that. Then go back to 2012. And you had David Dewhurst, who runs as an incumbent, right? Because he's lieutenant governor, a statewide official. And there's this guy who just has all the energy in the world to just be everywhere, all the time. At every every uh, place that there were three Republicans having coffee, this guy shows up to talk to them, right? And his name is Ted Cruz. And nobody had ever even heard of that guy before. And he beats a well-entrenched statewide official and is now the U.S. senator, and it's not Dewhurst. Uh, so the candidates matter. Their message matters, and whether they have the resources to get the message out matters. Yeah, one of my favorite bands now is a band called American Aquarium, and they have a song that says, the harder you work, the luckier you get, right? And that's always been the truth in politics particularly. The candidates who are willing to get on the road and go places, even in a lost cause, are going to always do better. You know, you have to work your tail off. And that's what I think, The I, I've said this before, but a lot of the the Democrats who watched Better Work in 2018, you know, didn't quite understand that message. I think it's like that uh-huh. you have to really attack this. Like every single day, you're going to get up and you're going to do something about this campaign. You can't take a week off and then try to come back and say, "Oh, bye, remember me?" That press release I sent you three months ago. It's like no, no. It's like it's an everyday experience. If you want to be the leader of a state or want to be elected by people, you have got to be out there every single day. And how many candidates? do that and you're seeing that you know greg abbott to his to his credit is out there working the ground mm-hmm. like you know, he's doing a couple events a day you know which is like pretty impressive for a guy like who could just coast you know it's like but again you know you got to be out there working if you're going to get reelected or win or, and knock off an incumbent right his team knows that we're right that you can't just take it for granted you do have to be out there he was at an event for example in austin and he loved having AOC as a foil for what he would like to say. Here he is uh, at a campaign event uh, right here in my neighborhood, actually. Did you all see what happened over the course of the past weekend on Saturday? Of all things, the person who came to Texas who was campaigning in San Antonio uh, for Democrat candidates was none other than Ocasio-Cortez. And she w- exactly. And so she was talking about the need to show the public what Democrats stand for. And we know exactly what they stand for. They stand for these radical leftist uh, policies like the Green New Deal. 
Listen, we live in the great state of Texas, the state that's number one in production of oil and gas and provides millions of jobs in the energy sector, and we are not going to allow these radical leftists to destroy those high-paying energy jobs for more than a million Texans. I am running for re-election to protect our energy jobs in the great state of Texas. We really need some better audiovisual people at his campaign events. It's overmodulated. It's it sounds awful. Um, of course, it's not just about AOC. He extended the argument to, of course, also be about Beto O'Rourke, who is running against him. If you look at these radical leftist policies that people like Beto has stand for, and that people like Ocasio Cortez has been pushing, and and that is something that's extraordinarily dangerous in our communities, and that is defunding the police. You've seen the consequences of this across the entire country, whether it be in Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York or Chicago. And I hate to say it, in Texas, there's always one city, always one city. And unfortunately, that city is the city of Austin, Texas. Even Austin, Texas, defunded the police. And whenever you see this happen, it leads to one thing, and that is more crime. The same happened in Austin, Texas. What happened in Austin, Texas was extremely predictable. They defunded the police, and this past year, they set an all-time record for the most number of murders. Now, of course, when you um, account for the growth in Austin, the rate of murder is nowhere close to what it was decades ago when we had, you know, big spikes in crime. But this is the narrative that he would like to put out there. Um, and, Jeremy, it speaks to the Republicans playing the hits, right? I mean, in yeah. 2020... This was a great argument for Republicans all over the country, not just here in Texas, but we saw the commercials in places like Dallas, Fort Worth and Houston, uh, particularly uh, in the suburbs where they were targeting uh, some of these advertisements, both on television and online, uh, where you would see someone's calling 911 and there's somebody breaking into their home and the police cannot show up or you're going to have to wait on hold for 45 minutes because they've been defunded and the democrats never really formulated a great answer for that attack they were you know republicans were just saying that all democrats which is not true but all democrats want to defund the police um and it, you know we talked earlier about what's going on in the schools around the country and here in texas and that's where the energy is now i mean you know people uh, are so frustrated with what has happened uh, with mask mandates, with uh, what what Lieutenant Governor Patrick today was talking about with critical race theory, which is, you know, another one of these things that they're tarring all Democrats with, even though this is something that's not even be ta being taught uh, in public schools or almost even in any, any universities. Uh, but the Democrats have to come up with some arguments to counter this or... And the, because I had some Democrats say to me, well, Scott, what are we supposed to say other than we're not for that stuff, which we had, they said, we had pointed that out, that we're not for defunding the police, and we're not for teaching critical race theory to kids in schools, so and we're not even for that. What are we supposed to say? Well, you could say you're not for it, and you could come up with an argument of your own about, it could be about something else that resonates with voters more than these things. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that's where they lost. Like, there was some Democrats who were talking about reform the police, you know, after what happened to George Floyd. And that just got lost. Right. And it's like that whole like, let's reform the police to make sure this doesn't happen again. You know, the Republicans did a good job of like taking over that. Going, oh, yeah, we want the reforms, too. They didn't really do a whole lot of it, you know, you know, in the legislative session, at least. But, you know, they were able to then tar you know, the, the Democrats for what was going on the far left. But and I just kind of want to go back at, you know, like this this. Abbott taking jabs at Austin like all the time. You know, I don't know if you Boys, saw it. Yep. Like he was up in Wichita Falls after that event, uh, where he says uh, he's you know his um, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders up there with him, and he's talking about you know nice being back in his hometown. He says the best thing about Austin is it's not too far from Texas. You know, he goes, yeah. He says you can get right yeah. back into Texas real quick from Austin. And you're just yeah. like, oh boy, it's like, and, and it's one thing when it's coming from, I don't know, some people, but it went from your governor and you're thinking about the, you know, over a million people roaming around the streets of Austin. Uh, mm -hmm. Boy, that, that feels a little insulting. <laughs> well, and not only that, but hypocritical. Anytime a major corporation relocates to Austin, 
Governor Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Patrick cannot brag about it fast enough. It put out a press release or a tweet that says, oh, Google's here, Facebook's here, Indeed's here, Tesla is here, uh, Samsung is coming to the uh, Austin area with a giant uh, investment uh, in in the Austin area. Um, it, but but hey, Austin is the, also the worst place in Texas to live because they have these far left liberals who are running the city into the ground. You noticed one of these endorsements in the Republican primary for governor because look, before Abbott can face off with Beto, he's got to get through this primary which I would say is spirited, but not necessarily competitive. Uh, this endorsement was from Ted Nugent, of all people. And he's endorsing, I, when I first heard this, Jeremy, I thought maybe he was endorsing Abbott. Yeah. Because he says Abbott's, because he says Abbott's great, but that wasn't the case at all. Ted Nugent standing there in South Texas to say this. Hey, I'm Ted Nugent full-time. I'm addicted to freedom. I got this we the people thing going on. It's perfect. And it only exists in the United States of America. That's why I moved to Texas, because I demand real freedom. And you know what? We have a pretty good governor down here in Greg Abbott. I worked hard to get him elected. But if you were a pretty good bass player, you couldn't be in my band. Pretty good doesn't cut it during this culture war. We need a warrior that stands up for freedom and will not compromise. That's why I'm on the campaign trail with Colonel Allen West. This guy will stand up with constitutional accountability and we're gonna show the rest of the nation and the world what real freedom and why those words in the Constitution have meaning and iron. Colonel Allen West will fight for those constitutional rights. Now, the uh, campaign of West was sort of re-highlighting this this week it yeah. seemed uh, because you had some of the gun groups gun rights groups come out and endorse and these are you know these are the big guns to use the pun i'm sorry dear listener these are the big guns on these issues it was the nra texas state rifle association and of course they are endorsing the incumbent yeah exactly and in, in, in west case he has not only nugent but he also announced this week he had stephen williford endorsing him you know i think those two might be two of the most like well-known gun owners right now in texas stephen williford of course being the man who uh you know, you know went after the guy who was shooting up the sutherland springs church uh you know, remember he was the the good guy with a gun uh who they started firing from his house you know to try to take out the the killer um and so like you have these two guys who are behind west and but then you have the nra you know, now, you know, coming out, making sure everybody knows that, no, 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 they're endorsing, you know, Greg Abbott. So, you know, it, like you mentioned, like, I, I'm not so sure West or, you know, State Senator Don Huffines, you know, one of the other Republicans in this race, they're certainly more of a primary challenge that Greg Abbott has ever had. Uh, and they both had some electoral success in their life. Sure. So it's like it, sure. it, requir- it forces Greg Abbott to spend a little bit more time campaigning. And you just can't completely write these off, especially when you have turnout this low. You, you just never know how this is going to go. You know, it's like we have like just atrocious turnout. We'll be lucky to hit you know, 15, 16% turnout in this election cycle, which is insanely low compared to most other states. You know, there are actually states that have midterm elections where 30% of the electorate will vote and that we can't get even over 20%. Not always the case. There was a point, you know, uh, where in Texas, we had that kind of turnout. This was, you know, if you go back before 1990, we had our primary Mm -hmm. election in May for midterm cycles and our turnout was sky high. We're talking, there were some mm-hmm. cycles where we were hitting almost 40% of uh, turnout. And, but now we're way early. You know, like we moved our primary in 1990 to being in March. We are the earliest midterm primary anywhere in the nation by not a couple weeks, months. <laughs> Nobody else dares to vote before May because they know the turnout will be terrible. Here in Texas, we're voting in, in March, and we're seeing it right now, where after the first day of early voting, we were at 1% turnout, <laughs> which tells you, like, oh, that's going to be a rough one to see how do you get anybody out. So that tells you that there's just such low turnout, and low turnout elections are just really hard to predict because you just don't know what you're going to get. Yeah, right. You know, I was uh, told about some polling in a couple of different Texas House districts where the incumbents were uh, enjoying comfortable leads, uh, where they, it looked like they were up by as much as eight points or 10 points. 
but they felt that they had to do a lot more work. And this, these were fairly recent polls just in the last you know few days. They thought that they were uh, you know doing okay, but they needed to do a lot more work because it's unpredictable when you have so few people turning out. It might be that it looks like you're 10 points ahead, but if the turnout is low, it doesn't take that many of those votes to turn things around, right? And so uh, you think about the fact that the um, the elections are structured here to protect incumbents, but there's a flip side to that, which is that if, if you have such a small group of people voting, you're having to play to a group of people who care about some things that are um, not mainstream yes. in any way, shape, or form. Let me prove that to you. In North Texas, north of DFW, up in uh, Grayson County, Sherman Denison, Oklahoma South, <laughs> way up there. Um, one of these races features Shelley Luther, who you may remember as the owner of the salon in Dallas who defied Greg Abbott's orders to shut down certain businesses in the beginning of the pandemic. And that was sort of her claim to fame for a little while. Some people say flash in the pan. She ran for the Texas Senate and that didn't work out in a special election. And Senator Drew Springer won that, uh, won that race. But Luther is now challenging Republican Representative Reggie Smith, who's from that area, from Sherman. And Luther was at an event with, um, with Smith, and they were doing a candidate for him. Jay Root, reporter for the Houston Chronicle, happened to go to this event to check out the, the election, check out the campaign. And she was going off about transgender children. Luther, who used to teach in public schools... She was lamenting, and I wish I was making this up, she was lamenting the fact that because people have talked so much about being understanding of what transgender children go through, she didn't like the fact that other kids could not make fun of them. So, when you listen to this, you'll notice that she's talking about that idea that the kids couldn't make fun of the transgender children, and then there is some silence when I think that she may have realized by looking out at the crowd's faces while she was saying that, that maybe she went a little too far with this commentary. Take a listen. I don't know any other counties that are more Bible Belt conservative than this district. And it's the Overton window. They have AOC in Congress on the left. And what we have done is become comfortable with what is okay in our society. I am not comfortable with the transgenders, um, the kids that they brought in my classroom, um, when they said that this kid is tran transgendering into a different sex, that I couldn't have kids laugh at them, like I couldn't have... Um... Wait for it. Like other kids got in trouble for having transgender kids in my class, that's why I vote for school choice. And my opponent is completely against school choice. Thank you. See what I mean, Jeremy? She, it seemed yeah. like at some point during that whole rap about the transgender children, she realized looking at even with a Republican crowd there, but this is a this is a forum for Republican candidates, and the people in the crowd probably looked horrified. That's my guess. I didn't, you know, I didn't see any pictures of their faces, but she stopped. She's somebody who can read a room, um, and then shifted to an argument about school choice, which is, of course, one of the go-to issues for certain folks uh, on the right. Um, but my point in bringing this up is that, look, who knows how this race is going to go? I think the incumbent's probably in decent shape, but but we'll see. To your point, um, these are unpredictable because of the low turnout. But with the governor's race, with the attorney general's race, with the agriculture commissioner's race, um, et cetera, and all of these legislative races, the incumbents have really made it difficult for anybody to get to their right, which is where all these challengers want to come from. Yep. Right. So whether it's, whether it's Greg Abbott adopting everything Don Huffines ever said about building a wall, getting rid of uh, requiring permits for carrying a handgun, the six week abortion ban, a ban on critical race theory, regulating those transgender children and which uh, sports teams they can play on and all of that stuff. It doesn't leave someone like Shelley Luther or any of these other challengers, it doesn't leave them any room to maneuver, does it? 
Yeah, it doesn't feel like there's a lot, a lot of space. So you're, you're hearing them like, even though they, they passed, you know, legislation going after transgender kids, you know, no, they, we can do more, you know. And so Huffines has been doing, and, and West too, have both been hanging Abbott on, well, you didn't call a special session on tra- transgender surgeries and, you know, those modifications, you know. It's right. like, and so they're trying to find one little narrow piece that just – is probably the worst bumper sticker you've ever heard of in Texas politics, right? You know, it's like, right. you know, how do you say, well, Governor Abbott, yeah, sure, he, you know, prevented transgender kids from playing sports, but he didn't do this, you know, it's like, which is a really narrow slice uh, mm-hmm. that probably doesn't affect a whole lot of people, uh, but they want no, that right. out there. They, they got to wave something, you know, you've got to convince these people, why do I need to fire Greg Abbott? Well, you know, he didn't build a big enough wall. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, it's not a good enough wall. Okay, how do we get better? Well, you can start with, particularly the National Guard issue. I thought that was the, the greatest example. Those guys were saying, hey, he needs to send more people to the border, you know, to fight, mm-hmm. you know, to, 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 you know, help basically be a addition to the Border Patrol. Well, Abbott did just that. He sent 10,000 soldiers to the Texas border. Right. You know, and now like yet somehow West and Huffine still, you know, have to say, well, I would have sent more troops to the border. It was like, right. you can't fit more troops. <laughs> There's no room. There's no place for them to sleep right now. <laughs> all right. And not to mention that you could stand, uh, you know, military shoulder to shoulder all the way from Brownsville to El Paso. And people would still be able to come across the border illegally. Yep. Right through the ports of entry. So you want to shut those down. So then what does Don Huffine say? He says if he was elected, he would shut down all the ports of entry. And then when he's asked, then, well, and I wish I was making this up. Then when he was asked on WFAA television in Dallas, Fort Worth, they said, well, what about the economic impact of that? Wouldn't that hurt the economy in Texas? And Huffine says, well, yes, it would, but we have to do it anyway. Um, On all of these issues, there's nowhere else to go. And I think the flip side is for those incumbents who want to make the argument to the business community, and they have been doing this both, you know, privately as well as in some of their campaign uh, messages, they try to, these Republicans try to make the, the argument that, hey, if I get beaten in my race, then you're going to have these people who are that much more extreme in office. And what I hear privately from a lot of the business community guys is they say, well, if you're going to vote exactly the same way they would, then what is the difference? And if you go and you look at the campaign finances for a lot of these uh, legislative incumbents, they're not getting the kind of backup that they would normally get, right? I mean, um, there's, there, I mean, obviously business groups are coming to their to their defense because they are incumbents. I don't want to say that they're not, but it doesn't have the same feel to it at all that some previous legislative uh, election cycles have gone uh, where when Speaker Joe Strauss was there, who stood up to the lieutenant governor on the bathroom bill um, and some of these other uh, issues that came up that were pushed by Patrick. um, It's not the same sort of feeling at all with these uh, with these races. It's almost like a wait and see kind of approach from some of the business folks that want to, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll hedge their bets and they'll, you know, they'll give to certain candidates and and make certain endorsements. But I think for the, for the most part, especially in the open races and the open seats where there are three, four five, you know, six candidates where you don't have an incumbent. um, A a lot of those various business groups are just kind of keeping their powder dry and we'll see who advances to a runoff and go from there. Is that enough show? That feels like we just filled up the tank. We did. And, uh, I need to go vote. I'm going to do that now because I'm going to be on the road covering these uh, races for 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 the next week and a half, whatever it is. And uh, once I get out of Austin, I won't be around the uh, the Cedar anymore. There you go. And I won't need these medications. Yesterday, Jeremy, it it leveled me. I slept a lot of yesterday, which is not normal for me. <laughs> I was I just I, I I you know I, I'm just such a wuss when I get sick. I just it's terrible. And ironically, if I had just left yesterday and got on the campaign trail, I wouldn't be around the cedar. So I'll have a, I promise to have a better voice next week. I promise to make any kind of sense next week, unlike this show today. If you enjoy the show with me hopped up or not on allergy meds, you should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, however you listen to your favorite podcasts. Give us the best rating that you can, and you should be a subscriber at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.